Well, good morning. It is a privilege to come before you and bring to you God's Word and knowing that uh, He has redeemed us with His blood. We are precious to Him, but it's very important that we understand that the glory is about Him. It's not to us. And that as we even worship today, that the, the as far as I'm concerned, the most important part is for us to quietly or quiet our hearts and our spirits so that we can hear him speak to us through his word. And I trust that he will uh, be pleased to do so as we go to not just the book of Esther, but as we look at it in its uh, context within other passages of scripture. So if you will, go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 1. Pastor Tim mentioned, he has brought us through the first six chapters of Ezra as the people of God began to make their way back to Jerusalem after being in exile for 70 years. Uh, and as he picks up in Ezra chapter 7 and continuing on with the rest of the return, uh, kind of I was kind of joking with Pastor Tim this morning that I felt like that perhaps maybe we were the ones that still haven't gone back to Jerusalem. Everybody else has gone uh, to the beach or somewhere else. But uh, maybe we missed out and we are the disobedient ones who are still living in our comfort zone here. But I, perhaps maybe it's the opposite. I don't, I'm not sure. The Lord will work all that out. Uh, but anyway, while you're in Esther chapter 1, Put your worship guide or your finger there because I would like for us to actually start in Jeremiah chapter 29. Because this sets the stage for those who we are going to read about in the book of Esther. You will recall that Jeremiah is one of the prophets who God chose to use speaking to his people about their sin both in ways of warning them, but also sadly crying about the, and being in much grief about the judgment that God had placed upon them because of their disobedience, finding themselves in captivity. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, look if you will, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. They have to remember that the nation of Israel, or the ten northern tribes, were the ones who were originally taken to Babylon. And it would be later that the two southern kingdoms, known as Judah, would be taken, but that would be after Persia had conquered Babylon. So it's kind of confusing. You had to kind of keep your world history in check. But Jeremiah is speaking to those who were taken to Babylon. Verse 5. This is the instruction that God gives to his people as they're in exile. Now this is very interesting. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. <laughs> now wait a minute. God, you just sent your people into captivity as a result of their sins and the sins of their fathers. And when they arrive, the instruction that you give them is to build houses 
live, give your daughters and your sons to marriage, plant vineyards and gardens and eat as if you live there, multiply, continue living life. Yeah. Because God had a plan. God continues in verse 11 by saying, For I know the plans I have for you. Now, I know you perhaps have heard that from a multitude of other people, maybe on TV, maybe read it in a book, maybe heard somebody at work talk about this, but this is the context, and it's very helpful for us to remember that. For God says, I know the plans that I have for you, speaking specifically to his people who are in captivity, not to somebody who's dreaming of going to college, of having a job and getting married, but he's speaking to a specific group of people that I'm bringing you into exile. Now you live, you continue to nurture your life as you normally would, for I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now that's a very comforting hope. Jeremiah will make it very clear Seventy years, and you'll be back home. That's the reason why God could give them instruction to sustain your life. Live as prosperously as you can. Eat from the fruit of your garden, the produce of that which you grow. Extend your families by being, continue to marry your children. Continue to multiply by having more children because there's coming a day, God didn't say, well, you know what, things may work out for you. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Not that I have some hopes and dreams and some aspirations of what you could be if you just simply try hard enough. But I've got plans for you. And when you seek after me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And when you find me, I will restore everything that you lost. If you, all those things that you remember about the kingdom of Israel. When you think about the reign of David and how great it was, I'll restore all of that. And then some. And as Ezra chapter 1 through 6 God moves through even worldly, unbelieving leaders to do what? Bring his people back. However, all the people didn't go back. And when we come to Esther chapter 1, we find what life is like. Esther presents a number of challenges, and if you're familiar with Esther at all, the book that is, you'll be familiar with some of those challenges, one of which is the fact that people scratch their heads and wonder how in the world could a book be found within the Holy Scriptures that make absolutely no reference to God. You will not find God's name in any form. Jehovah, Yahweh, El, what, it doesn't matter. His name will not be found within the, the words 
you'll also wonder how in the world could we have a, a, a book found in Holy Scripture that would include the lives of people who were demonstrating absolutely no obedience to God's laws. There's no Passover being observed. There's no mention of the word or actions of prayer. We've just spent the last three weeks of Christian growth group talking about prayer and still have just scratched the surface of what the Bible has to speak about. But yet here it is. And I think that it, in light of what Jeremiah chapter 29 tells us about the world and about God's people, I find it very significant that in spite of those challenges that the book of Esther is here to remind us, if nothing else, that we have a sovereign God. A sovereign God who, number one, is not going to be thwarted by any enemy. His plans are going to take place. God promised Abraham, I'm going to call out a people, they're going to be my people, I'm going to bless them, I'm going to bless all the nations through him. Forever. And that's God's plan. God's going to carry that out. There is no enemy. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, whoever. God's plan is God's plan. He's going to carry it through. No enemy can thwart God's plan because he's sovereign. But number two, let's be reminded as we look at this book of Esther that God absolutely needs none of us to be willing and submit ourselves to his will to accomplish his purposes. We think of someone like Daniel. He and his brethren committed themselves to not be, to touch the worldly ways of the kingdom of Babylon. They would not drink his wine. They would not eat his meat. They kept themselves pure because they were committed to God's ways, to God's commandments, to God's ordinances. And God certainly used them. They weren't afraid to mention that they were Jewish. Of course, we have to understand that that term Jew came about during this time period of history because it referred to those who came from Judah. They were the last group of God's people, the Hebrews, to be taken into captivity. And that is a term that has stuck with them throughout the centuries. But that, is, that in and of itself is a term or description of people that identify them with people of exile. But while you have someone like Daniel, the fact that there is no Daniel mentioned in Esther does not keep God from fulfilling his plan. That should be an encouragement to us, and hopefully by the time we're finished today, we will take great comfort in that. God's not mentioned the book of Esther is not referred to in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't mention about what a great example Esther was. Uh, there's no room for Mordecai, who is in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great hall of faith. But yet here the book of Esther stands is a testament to the sovereignty of God. Needing not us, nor being made impotent by the enemy. But he is sovereign for his glory. Now back to the book of Esther in chapter 1. We won't read through here, but if you were, you would find that uh, 
even more reason to, to, to scratch your head and think that this is nothing but a history lesson here about King Ahasuerus, which actually was King Xerxes, and his royal throne. And it begins by telling us about a feast that he was having. Now, Xerxes' father, Darius, was defeated. He tried in, in, in the world in which he lived, trying to conquer as much as the world as he could, was defeated by the Greeks. Somewhere after the, the, the Jeremiah gave the law or the instruction and prior to the returning or after the return to build the temple, but prior to what we see here in the book of Ezra, obviously. And Ahasuerus has this feast for his armies, all the officials, all the administrators, basically all everyone who is important in the land of Persia, almost in a way to try to muster up some morale for the troops. After being defeated by the Greeks, that's not a very prominent thing. You don't want to sit here and boast in that. And if you're going to be a great power of the world, then you want to make everyone see it. So you, I can just picture, uh, you know, you see the old World War II movies and videos where you have, uh, like, uh, Nazi Germany, and they're parading all their troops down through, and even in, in North Korea today, you see, you know, parading their missiles and all their tanks, and you see China and their might and their grandeur of all of their strength, and they'll and they'll do that not because they're getting ready to go to war, but they just want to kind of boast in, in how big they are. And for Xerxes, for Ahasuerus, it lasted 180 days. Now, that's quite a party. And then once that was over with, he brought his really, really, really important people into his palace for seven more days for a drunken feast. And you say, what in the world does that have to do with God's sovereignty? We'll get there. It's during this, on the seventh day, on the last day, they're just really hammered by this point. They've been drinking and eating and partying. And on the seventh day, Ahasuerus has this grand idea that I've shown for 180 days the, grand, the greatness of my kingdom. I want to show you just how beautiful my wife is. So he tells the, ki the queen, who's been throwing her own shindig for, for the rest of the women, to come in and to display your beauty. Now the language hides exactly to what extent that is. But it can't be good. Anytime a drunken husband asks his wife to come in and display your beauty in front of a bunch of other men, that's not a very virtuous thing. But yet that's what he had requested his wife Vashti to do. She refused. And she started the women's live movement in a way. Because Ahasuerus said, we can't have women defying our, our, their husbands this way, so we're going to make a law saying they either do it or we get rid of them. Because we don't want word getting around that women can just stand up for themselves and defy their husbands, and it's just a big mess. This begins God's working of creating an atmosphere in which he is going to work sovereignly. 
in spite of the fact that nobody's prayed for it, nobody's expecting it, and if he had not intervened, there would be a destruction of his people, which would go against what he promised their patriarch would happen. You see, this created a situation where now they had what was the forerunner to the bachelorette, or the bachelor, whichever way you want to look at it. I'm, I'm only guessing because I've never watched the program, but I heard that it's very enticing and people watch it that that's coming from work. No, nobody here at church, I'm, I know y'all are wondering, what is he talking about? But there's a beauty pageant in which the king is going to find a new queen. And in this search for beautiful women, in verse 8 of chapter 2, So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa, the capital in which the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. So here we have Esther, who we just, in verses prior to this, were introduced as an orphaned Jewish girl who when she had grown she became under the custody of her uncle Mordecai, who was a Jew. The Bible tells us that she was beautiful in form and face. And she became part of a harem. It goes on that as she would take her turn to go in with the king, which she took a really big spa treatment for this. Six months of this and six months of that, and by that time you're ready to go before the king, and then you had a night to please him. Ahasuerus was pleased with Esther. In verse 17 of chapter 2, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Another party ensues. And God is at work. And you're scratching your head again like me saying, but, but this doesn't, there's no obedience to the law. There's no observance of commandments. There's no prayer to God. There's no speaking to the prophet through a prophet to Esther or Mordecai. How is all this working? And we go on. Verse 21 of chapter 2. In those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, there were two officials from who guarded the door and... Um, Things aren't much different than today, but you know what? When you're in power, when you're the ruler, you're always going to have somebody who doesn't like what you do, and you're going to have somebody not like it so much that they want to take you out. Now, Mordecai just happened to be at the right spot at the right time to overhear these two men plotting to kill the king. Long story short, he informed Esther. Esther informed the others, and these two men were hanged. Immediately. The king's life is saved. And oh, by the way, 
Mordecai gets a, a job. <laughs> a job in which he's able to stay really close to the palace. But he's not the only one. Just in case you were thinking, oh, God's really moving ahead. He's chosen his servant and he's going to free all these people and lead them back to, to Jerusalem. It doesn't happen that way because in chapter 3, verse 1, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Haman is not a Jew. As a matter of fact, Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. More specifically, of Agag. Now, the Amalekites, you may remember a previous time in which the Jews were about to be exterminated and wiped off. Through the Exodus, the Amalekites attacked Israel and were defeated. Later on, King Saul would have an opportunity and was actually given instruction to kill all the Agagites. Wipe them out. But as Saul had a notion to do from time to time, didn't exactly do all that God commanded him to do or in the way God told him to do it. He eventually killed Agag, but his descendants continued to live on and Haman is one of those descendants. And when Haman, in chapter 3, approaches Mordecai, Mordecai, being a Jew, is not going to give any respect, any honor to an official of Persia. And Haman, who feels pretty good about himself, is offended. And when he finds out that Mordecai is not only offending him by not bowing, but that he is also an Israelite, a descendant of those people who attacked and killed many of his people, he's really incensed. So that he goes to King Ahasuerus and says, King, there's some bad weeds in the field. Now you have to understand that in Persia, that there was a, a somewhat a great amount of freedom when it came to religion because they believed in many gods. And so we can see how easily the Israelites could fit in because their God would really be no you know, objection to any other God because, well, they were just one like the other ones. But Haman went to King Ahasuerus and said, you've got these people who are not giving you any tribute. This is a line that we get throughout Scripture, isn't it? These people don't want to worship you. They want to worship another God. Now, we don't see exactly how they do it. He just finds out that he is a Jew. He is one from Judah in exile. He's not complaining because these people are observing the Passover every year. He's not complaining because these people are sacrificing animals for atonement of their sins. It's just that he's a Jew. We know where he came from and we know what their people did to us. So he says we need to get rid of him. King Ahasuerus, because he thinks highly of Haman, says, okay, put a decree out there, and it cannot be rewritten. We will have one day coming up next year that we will annihilate all the Jews. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. 
He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and uh, decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. They were troubled. The decree's just been out. We're getting ready to die. Again, scratching of the head. Why aren't they praying to God? Why aren't they asking for help? We don't know. All we know is there have been decades since if any of these people who were living ever saw Jerusalem, it's been so long ago, they don't know what sacrifices are. Yes, they've heard of these prophets, and yes, they've heard the teachings, but let's face it. Look at the land in which we live and think about how much has changed in your lifetime. Think about how easy it is for us as believers to take for granted things that people that grew up in the same, you know, they're living today, they have no clue about. There was a distance from God. Just as there was a distance from Jerusalem. And their lifestyle showed it. They had taken God's instruction to maintain your livelihood so that you can return back to the city to maintain their livelihood so they can get comfortable in this world. And it beckons us as believers to make sure that we hear John very clearly. To not be a friend of this world. For the things of this world are passing. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These things will destroy us. And in their most troubling time, they're facing their existence being wiped out. All you hear is lamenting and wailing and crying. But remember, God's sovereign. He's not going to be thwarted by the enemy, nor does he need us or need anyone else to say, God, I'm mounting up with you. We're going to go in there and we're going to take it. Nope. God's sovereign. God has a plan. He knows the plans that he has for them. And it's a plan for good. Now, when Esther heard about this, she was troubled. In verse 13, after Esther had tried to bring him more clothes so that he could be more fitting to be in the royal court, Mordecai told, uh, told them, the messengers from Esther, to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you are in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And here's another verse that you have heard in countless different ways, but let's remember the context here as he says, And who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this. Pastor Tim, a few weeks ago, in speaking about prayer, and how God works through prayer as a result of prayer, manufacture whatever it does, that God, when He is working, moves His people to pray. Whether Mordecai understood what was going on, I believe God was moving Mordecai with wisdom that he didn't understand, and perhaps He even acknowledges it. Who knows? Maybe you're there for a particular reason. Instead of 
We serve a holy, righteous God. He is all wise. He is all loving. He has promised to protect us. And you are our hope. No, that's not what he says. He says, who knows? (laughs) Maybe you can be our way out. Because you're no safer in the palace than we are outside the palace. So Esther told them, reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa and fast for me. Again, we would love to hear the words, have them pray and fast for me. May they ask God to give me strength. May they give me wisdom. May me give them favor before God. But it's, again, distant people, distant lives. We don't know what's going on. All we know is God is working through people and, as it were, positioning them, giving them action, giving them wisdom. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maid, any of my maidens will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's willing to die. Now, we're familiar with the rest of the story. That she plans a, a banquet for the king. The king extends the, the scepter and allows her to speak and asks of the king anything that she wants up to half the kingdom. I don't know what this idea about half the kingdom was. We see in Egypt and we see it in Persia. It's just nobody's ever said, you know, okay, Mark, you can have anything you want up to half the kingdom. But I'd probably take it. In foolish wisdom. But the scepter's extended and she says, you know what? I want to have another banquet. I want Haman to be there. Haman, the enemy, the one who has constructed this plot to kill the Jews. She's granted that. And as they're waiting, Haman is again characterized as a very boastful, arrogant man. Even in his drunkenness, it gets worse. As he goes and tells all of those friends and his wife and his household about how great he is, how much the king loves him, and how important he is, but he still just can't get over the fact that there's Jews in the land. And this man, Mordecai, has shown him no honor. I see a little bit of myself in Haman. I can be objectively see myself as the most blessed graciously given favor by God in so many different ways things that I have not been subjected to opportunities have been given and I can look at all of that but it would be just one little thing in my arrogance and my selfishness and I just can't stand it it taints everything else and Haman was a man of sin an evil wicked man and in spite of his prominence and his power and his position the fact that Mordecai showed him no honor disturbed him his wife made it really clear you need to hurry up and hang this man and so they began working on gallows Apparently they were working on gallows so loudly that King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. 
making so much noise. I don't, I don't know if that was the reason or not. God was working some way to keep him awake because in chapter 6 we see King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. And he did what some of us may do. I don't do this when I can't sleep. I just toss and turn to make myself that much more sore the next morning when I wake up. But some of you may actually get up and pick up a book or maybe get the newspaper out and start reading through. And so what Ahasuerus did, he began reading the chronicles of what was going on. And he came across this man named Mordecai and said, this is the man who saved my life. He was the one who had advised us that there were two men going to murder me. And I don't remember ever making a big deal about that. that. That's a pretty big thing. He saved my life. And the following day, he goes and says, uh, he asked for Haman to come in and says, Haman, what, what have we done about the person who saved my life? Oh, we haven't done anything. We need to honor this man. And Haman realizes that, uh-oh, it's the same guy that's causing me such torment. Now, later, as this continues to deepen, during Esther's banquet, it gets worse for Haman in that Esther not only tells King Ahasuerus that there's been a decree to wipe out the Jews, and, oh, by the way, I'm one of them, but this powerful man that you set in charge to do it is responsible for it. And so King Ahasuerus is very upset. You're going to kill my wife? You're going to kill the queen? Long story short, after it just so happened that King Ahasuerus walked in the room as Haman was pleading for his life, he says, we're going to hang you. Get the gallows you were making last night, and they hung him that day. But we still, even though we can rejoice, oh, well, then we got rid of Haman, the bad guy, there's still a decree that can't be overturned. But again, despite a lack of prayer or sacrifices or looking to God or a prophet giving them a word, King Ahasuerus gives the word saying, Since throughout the land, all the Jews, you can defend yourself. On this day, you know, you know the day's coming. As much as he may have regretted making the decree, it was there. But you know what? I'm going to give you an opportunity to defend yourself. And God, even though it doesn't say that here, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, God gave them victory over the enemy. And Jews celebrated even to this day. As lots or per were cast to make decisions, even within the breastplate of the high priest, there were stones that were the umum and the therum that would, would be tossed to make decisions to determine what God's will were will was or is or will be. It was a common practice to determine what you would do. Not necessarily in a Las Vegas sort of way where you're gambling away your life, but just simply in a way, okay, we're going to trust God's sovereignty over this work and we're going to make a determination based on that. The word Purim is derived from that idea. 
And they celebrate it every year. They celebrate the deliverance of their people from extermination. It's kind of like Christmas for us. They gave gifts to poor people. They ate a lot. They celebrated what God had done. They would even have little rattles that they would give to the children so that as they were going through the story, and every time that they would mention Haman's name, the children would shake the rattle so you wouldn't be able to hear his name because they hated it so much. And we have a book here that's written to those who return to, to Jerusalem, reminding them of what God did. In spite of the fact that there was no one pleading with God, in spite of the fact that there was an enemy that was trying to thwart God's purpose, we have it here in Scripture to encourage Now, what can we learn from it? Because this is more than just simply a great book of literature. This is more than just a book that has great conflict, has has an, a, a very evil antagonist. Uh, there's there's more than just simply a lot of tension and irony that's going through this this book. I hope that one thing that it will do it will cause us as believers to be very cautious about getting distant from God, for we forget what he has instructed us to do. You see, we can trust God because we know that the Bible tells us that pride does go before destruction and the Holy Spirit before a fall. We, we know that Psalm 94 tells us that God is a God of vengeance and we ask him to rise up and judge the earth and repay the proud and give them what they deserve. We ask that God would save the humble knowing that those with haughty eyes or proud eyes he will bring down. But perhaps there's a situation in our life where we understand that Peter's words are true and that we should be sober-minded and watchful. For your adversary, like a devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone he may devour. Maybe we find ourselves like Job, as Ramon brought to us last Sunday morning, someone who God has said, have you considered my servant? Because our enemy is one who seeks to destroy. Therefore, we must resist him and be firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brothers throughout the world, which is really strange for us. It should be the other way around. It should be... The ex, you know the exhortation given to those who are suffering in other parts of the world saying there's other people besides you suffering and after you've suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will call himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you may we find ourselves when we get in a situation as Esther was in may we be willing to give up our life for what greater love has a man path for his brother than he laid down his life for him. But that we would do so not in a spirit of fear because we haven't been given a spirit of fear. Right? We've been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be afraid as 
Mordecai was to say who he was. But share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of our, his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We've got more reason than ever. When the enemy is seeking to destroy the church, when the enemy is seeking to destroy the individuals within the church, when our own flesh and our own desires are seeking to destroy ourselves and our own lusts, we have so much more reason to understand what Romans chapter 8 very clearly says. Not just verse 28 where we know that all things work together for those who love God. And those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, those he knew the plans for, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things graciously? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of those things separate us from the love of God? I'm sure that neither death nor life nor rulers or angels nor things present or things to come nor powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mordecai and Esther were God's people by name. And he was as close as the mention of that name. They could have called on his name and said, Lord, we know that you have promised to bless your people. We know that you have promised to preserve us. We know that you have promised to return back to Jerusalem. But they were graciously just swimming through God's plan his purpose I was I'm always very interested to see how the Lord is going to work through the music and Pastor Chad is always good to ask me if there's any verses of scripture I'd like to include in the worship guide or any hymns or songs I'd like to include I did not suggest anything for him just so you'll know um, but receive the glory in your worship, God, if just all that we've accomplished you have done for us and any fruit we harvest is a gift from your hand. We're only jars of clay that hold the priceless treasure. We exist to bring you pleasure, O God. Now, Mordecai and Esther didn't realize what was going on. But what was accomplished was accomplished through God's hand. Right? Even though they weren't necessarily aware specifically, they were just looking around and saying, man, things are working out pretty good for us. I want you to notice the second verse. 
which I think for us as believers, for those of us who call on Jesus Christ as our Savior, is really important to understand. Only by your mercy can we come to you. Though we deserve your judgment, even though we deserve to be exterminated, even though we deserve your wrath, you have called us by name. So we glory in the cross of Christ that made us yours forever, that joined our lives together to sing. Church, I hope you understand that when you were brought into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you had no more understanding about what was going on at that point than Mordecai or Esther had. We were enemies of God. None of us were seeking Him, not one of us. But the love of God pursued us. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to us. Opening our eyes. We understand God's word. Our eyes have been opened to God's plan. His spirit has enabled us to live by his power. So that we can truly say the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Not that I hope that things work out. Boy, we better get busy because something bad's going to happen to us. But that God is the one whom I take refuge and He's my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. Does God need me to accomplish His work? But we have been graciously invited as His people to join Him and to engage our God. Not because it was our wisdom. Not because it was the best plan that we could come up with. But it was in spite of us. And that He would graciously grant it to us who believe repentance and faith so that we would turn away from our sinfulness. And then we'd look at the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross as a payment for our sin. The wrath that we were facing, He took it. And our faith is in that to save us. In that alone. It's not because we lived the life of Daniel. It's not because we were a great leader like Moses. It's not because we were a great king like David. It was because we were objects of His grace and His love. So when we do face the enemy, may we face it with courage, not in our own strength, but in the courage of the Lord. May we be dedicated to the point of potential death. Just as Esther demonstrated a commitment, may we demonstrate it even more because we know our Savior has done so for us. And that we rejoice as we see God working.